Would you bow with me once more as we prepare to enter God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the portion of it that we just watched in this video, that you, Lord Jesus, you are the living word, that at your word the creation, the creation of this world came to be, and that at your command the creation still obeys, that even the wind and the waves recognize the voice of their maker and obey And so we pray, Lord, this morning in the same way that we would recognize your voice, the voice of our maker, that we would hear it, that your word would penetrate our hearts, and that we would obey, that we would be transformed. So I pray, Lord, speak through me, your servant. May the word be yours, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are continuing on in our Romans series into part 37, entitled, Understanding the Present Time. I'll begin this morning with the story of the farm boy who accidentally overturned his wagon load of corn on the roadway. Well, a farmer who lived nearby, he saw this mishap and so he came over to investigate. Hey Willis, he called out, forget your troubles for a spell and come on in and have dinner with us. Then I'll help you get your wagon back up and on the road. Well, that's mighty nice of you, Willis answered. But I don't think Paul would like that very much. Aw, come on, son, the farmer insisted. You must be hungry. Let's eat first, and then we'll have the energy to work after. Well, okay, I I am awfully hungry, came the boy's reluctant reply, but I just know that Paul won't like it. Nevertheless, he then proceeded with the farmer to his house for a hearty dinner, after which Willis thanked his host, saying, You know, I do feel a lot better now, but I still just know that Pa's going to be real upset with me. Don't be foolish, exclaimed the neighbor. And then he asked, by the way, where is your Pa? To which Willis Willis sheepishly replied, he's under the wagon. He's under the wagon. Now what this story illustrates is that there are some things in life that are a matter of great urgency, which require that other less urgent things must wait until the matter of greater urgency is addressed first. Because no matter how hungry Willis actually was or may have been, you know, I'm starving is a word we often use, but I'm sure his paw, from the vantage point of being pinned under the wagon, would have considered his son's dinner to be a far less urgent matter than had he come to his aid. Well, it's much the same in our life of faith, where there are varying degrees of urgency that the Christian should prioritize to certain activities, to certain attitudes, and to certain behaviors. Now, take, for instance, in the realm of evangelism. The sad fact is that, much like Paul, the unsaved world is, in this sense, pinned under its burden of sin waiting for someone to come to their aid. But much like Willis, many Christians are much more concerned with filling their bellies, with the temporal concerns and pleasures of this world, rather than with sharing the gospel, which is always, always of the utmost urgency. And when this happens, when when we get caught up in placing a higher priority on our, our personal needs and provisions than than the salvation of those around us. When this happens, what we need is a wake-up call. 
And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul issues in our text today. And if you turn there with me to Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. And there we begin with the Apostle Paul's words where he continues on in this passage. He writes, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now, I'll summarize today's passage into three commands. Wake up, clean up, and armor up. Wake up, clean up, and armor up. So let's examine these three. The first command is the one that we just read. Wake up, Paul says. Wake up. Now here Paul was not trying to wake up his readers from a physical sleep. Rather, he was trying to wake them up from a spiritual sleep. And this spiritual sleep could be summarized as apathy towards the Lord. Elsewhere we read about complacency towards the Lord, laziness in service towards the Lord, and callousness towards sin. These are all the things that that are encompassing this wake-up call. And so he's talking about a spiritual sleep that he's trying to wake his readers up from. Now, back in my days as a camp counselor at Turtle Mountain, there would sometimes be a camper, and especially teenage campers, who would sleep through the morning wake-up bell. So whatever time that was, the the wake-up bell would ring, and that was the call for everyone to get up, you know, go brush your teeth, take a shower, whatever you need to do, and then the next bell would be the breakfast bell. Now, often when a a camper would sleep through the wake-up bell, they'd eventually wake up just in time for the breakfast bell. But sometimes they would sleep even through the breakfast bell. So one solution we as counselors had for repeat offenders was we had this old siren. And I don't know where this siren came from. It was a plug-in siren. But when you plugged it in, it sounded like an air raid siren. Like that was the the pitch, the way it went up and down, and it was in closed spaces, ear-piercing, this siren. And so I recall on one occasion, there was this teenage camper who every day, he not only slept through the wake-up bell, but no matter how many times people would yell for him to get up, get ready, he would also sleep through the breakfast bell. And so we decided we were going to teach him a lesson. So we got out the siren. He's buried in his sleeping bag, pillow over his head. We get out the siren. We place it right next to his head. And then for greater effect, that right after we had turned the siren on and it starts going off, we had all the other campers come running into the cabin yelling, fire, fire, fire. So needless to say, this camper hearing all this commotion, the siren going off next to his head, people yelling, fire. He bolts straight up out of bed, turns, he looks this way and that, and runs straight into the wall. Smack! (laughs) I was actually recording all of this. I had a video camera, and thankfully, nothing more was hurt on this boy than his pride. He didn't, you know, hit his nose into the wall, but he ran straight into it. He was so disoriented by all this noise. And so here we see that he needed this this abrupt wake-up call, and thankfully, We didn't have to use the siren on him ever again that week. He was getting up in time. Imagine that. But now, as hard as it can be, and those of you who have had teenagers, you know that it can be a very difficult thing sometimes to wake up teenagers. But as hard as that can be, 
that is still much, much easier than waking up some people from a spiritual sleep, from a spiritual slumber. And it's why when we read this verse, we can sense and hear the urgency in Paul's command to wake up. It's the same urgent message that he tried to convey to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 5 verse 14 in our call to worship this morning. There he wrote to the church of Ephesus, This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper! Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So now we must ask the obvious question. Why is waking up spiritually so urgent? Why is it such an urgent matter? Well, if we return again to Romans 13 and verse 11, Paul gives us two reasons within this one verse. Let's read it again. Paul says, And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. So here we read the first reason that Paul gives to wake up, and it is understanding the present time. The title for our sermon. The first reason he gives for urgency is that understanding the present time. So what time is it? Is it 11.27 on the clock? Is that what he's referring to? Is it time to get a watch? What time is it that we have to understand? Well, of course, we right away understand that Paul isn't talking about literal time here. Rather, he is talking about a spiritual sense of time, and particularly understanding the spiritual conditions of the present time in which the reader is living. So he's saying, do you understand the spiritual conditions of the present time? So for Paul's original audience, we've got to remember this was written in time and place to the first century church in Rome. And so we have to ask, to what spiritual conditions of their present time was Paul referring to? What were the things in, in the Roman context that they needed to understand which Paul is saying should be a catalyst for urgency to wake up. What what is it that they needed to understand? Well, let's take a closer look. We've been going through this series in the Romans, and we've been looking at a lot of their context, so a lot of that will be the backdrop for this. We're not going to get into all of that. But just to sort of recap the setting, Rome was the greatest city of the greatest empire in the world. That's where they were living in, the greatest city of the greatest empire in the world. The saying, all roads lead to Rome, that was their slogan. The sophistication, glory, power, and stunning architecture of Rome can hardly be overstated. In fact, just consider, some of you have probably visited Rome. Some of you have, in in the flesh, with your own eyes, seen the remnants of the incredible architecture of Rome that stands 2,000 years plus since it was built. And it's still there. The world-famous Colosseum. Some of you have seen it. And, And that Colosseum alone stands as an emblem of the mighty Roman Empire because it sort of personifies what Rome was all about. Simultaneously, the Colosseum portrays Rome's brilliance in engineering and architecture. It shows its power over her conquered enemies because it was within that arena that they would force their enemies, those whom they'd captured in battle, and they would force them to be gladiators fighting in the arena. And for what? 
all for her depraved lust for bloody spectacles and for death. And so we see this all encapsulating Rome just in the Colosseum alone. And then we consider that it was around the time that Paul was sending this letter, that the Roman church would have been reading this letter, that the Roman Empire was just beginning to persecute Christians. And that in just a few short years, the tyrannical and bloody rule of the Emperor Nero was looming just ahead of them. And, and we don't have to go into all the details of the sadistic ways in which he hunted down and slaughtered Christians. And many of them went to their deaths in that same Colosseum. This was all just ahead of them. And so for the first century Roman Christians... To understand the present time meant realizing and accepting the reality that for them to follow Jesus Christ was countercultural. This was going against all of the cultural and customs of the Roman populace as a whole. And so this meant that they could no longer just blend in with their fellow Roman citizens. They could no longer just blend in with the prevailing beliefs and practices of their idol-worshipping neighbors. It meant that they had to go against the grain, swim against the current, and all of that would make them a target for suspicion, ridicule, opposition, and finally outright persecution. And so we've seen this same pattern play out many times throughout history since then. And our nation today is no exception. We're not at the end of this pattern yet, but we're along this road. For consider that today, to be a Bible-believing follower of Jesus Christ increasingly puts us at odds with the prevailing beliefs and customs of the culture around us, which progressively and steadily is rejecting God's truth, replacing it with a truth of our own making, whatever we see as right in our own eyes. And so we need to understand, just as the Romans needed to understand, this reality that this is the present time in which we live. And in understanding that present reality, we then need to wake up to the fact that being a follower of Jesus Christ will cost us something. It will cost us something. Now, Unfortunately, the last two, three decades of evangelicalism in the West has been what's been often called easy believism. Have you ever heard that term before? Easy believism. It's easy to believe in Jesus because it doesn't cost you anything. To be a follower of Christ is easy. I'm just going to get a ticket to heaven and I can live however I want, carry on my merry way, and it's not going to cost me something. It won't cost me anything with my neighbors or anything like that. It's just going to be easy. That's what a lot of evangelicalism has been teaching for the last two or three decades. And I would say we are seeing the fruit of that in the lack of dedication for the Lord. Because Jesus never said following him was going to be easy, did he? His call included cross-carrying. If any of you would be my disciple, you must first pick up your cross, deny yourself, and then come follow me. The cost was built into the call. But that's been missing for a lot of teaching for a long time now. Paul wasn't doing that for the Romans. He's telling them, understand the present time. This is going to cost you something. So therefore, wake up. Be prepared. So returning now to the end of verse 11, we now read the second reason of why his readers needed to wake up. Paul says, 
the hour has already come for you to wake up for your, from your slumber because, now here's the reason, hear this, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now what does Paul mean by this? Well, he means that every day that passes on the calendar, every day that passes after you first believed in Jesus, some of you may know the actual date. I don't know the actual date that I gave my life to Christ. But every day that has passed since that day when I was a five-year-old and I gave my life to Christ, every day has brought me closer to the day that I will see Jesus face to face. And the same holds true for every last one of you. From the day that you put your faith in Christ, every day that has passed has brought you closer to the day that you will see Jesus face to face, for he is our salvation. That's what Paul means. Our salvation, Jesus, is nearer now, closer now, than when we first believed. So, of course, the, the other obvious question is, how do we get to see Jesus face to face? Well, there's only two primary ways. Either we go up to him by our death, or he comes down to us by his triumphant return. And what I absolutely love about Paul's statement here is that every single time we hear it or read it, it not only remains true, but it becomes more and more urgent. Why? Because I'm closer to seeing Jesus' face today than I was yesterday. And I will be closer again tomorrow than I am today. And so just as that clock is ticking and the, the second hands are going around and the minute hands going around, the hour hands are going around, with every tick of that clock, with every passing day, we are getting closer. Our salvation is drawing nearer. And so it's like Paul is plugging in that air raid siren. And it's going off. And he's shouting at the Romans. You can hear it in his voice and the urgency. Wake up! Stop sleepwalking through your Christian life. Stop dabbling with sin and take your walk with Christ seriously. Count the cost. Because we simply don't know when our last day will be. We don't know when the time will be up. But what we do know is that with every passing day, we have one less. Every passing day, we have one less day to work with. Billy Graham once said of this reality, we are to wait for the coming of Christ with patience. We are to watch with anticipation. We are to work with zeal. We are to prepare with urgency. We are to prepare with urgency. Now, I am absolutely, utterly convinced that we are in fact living in the last days. I'm convinced of this. We are in the last days. How do I know that? How can I say that with such certainty? Because at Pentecost, following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all believers, in Acts 2.17, Peter said that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit fulfilled the prophecy of the prophet Joel, who had said centuries earlier, Joel had said this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So did you catch that opening phrase? Joel said, in the last days. So in this sense, the last days started on the day of Pentecost. 
And they have been stretching all the way up to the day of Jesus' triumphant return to earth. And so the entire time period, since Pentecost till today, we call it the church age. This is the last days. We are living in them. And now, of course, no one knows how long this period of time will last. But it's all a part of the last days. And of course, we know that at the very end of the last days, there is going to be a time of tribulation. There's going to be the final, final act of the last days that's coming. But it's all part of the last days. And of course, the Lord Jesus did give us specific signs of his return, things that would come first. And he compared those signs to a woman's labor pains during childbirth. He said that there would be signs to watch for uh, that included things like deceitful teachers. Many would come in his name, even claiming to be him. Don't believe them. Don't go out to them. They're deceivers. And he says the world's going to be filled with deceivers and deceitful teaching. He said that another sign would be wars and rumors of wars, political strife of all types. He said that there would be earthquakes, pestilence, famines. And perhaps the most chilling of all, he said that there would be a great falling away of professing believers. All of those things and more, Jesus said, would, like labor pains, continue to increase in both their frequency and intensity until his return. Now, when I preached on this text way back, and I say way back, on March 8th of 2020, doesn't that feel like a long time ago? March 8th, 2020. Now when you hear it on the calendar, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but the reason why for me it feels like way back is because that was 2020 BC, that is before coronavirus, right? Before COVID. And anything that happened before that period of history feels like ancient history now, doesn't it? Just from what we've been living through. And I preached on this text back then, and in that sermon, I asked this question, which I will now ask you again. Are the world's troubles getting better or worse? Now, I'm pretty sure when I asked this question way back on March 8th, 2020, before all this really broke, all of us more or less agreed that, yeah, the troubles are getting worse, not better. Are the labor pains increasing in intensity and frequency? Are they, are they going up or are they going down? I think we all agree they're going up, they're increasing. The pace of the world's troubles, the labor pains, are increasing. So if it was true way back then on March 8th, 2020, how much more true isn't it today? We see these labor pains that Jesus spoke of that would precipitate his coming, they're accelerating. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul put it quite bluntly talking about the last days. He said, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And then he lists a bunch of things that would be happening, and a lot of them spiritual. And so for those first century Christians, we have to remember that the Romans who read this letter, most of them believed that Jesus would return within their lifetimes. But then when he didn't, we know that some were beginning to grow complacent. They were beginning to lose the sense of urgency of, you know, that Jesus could return at any time. Commitment to the faith was beginning to wane. And in the same way, it's likewise incredibly easy for that to happen to us when we get lulled into this sleep of spiritual complacency. Ah, oh, Jesus isn't going to come back in my lifetime. And besides, I'm going to live to 100, so I've got lots of time. I don't have to live my life with urgency and complacency can set in. 
And so to all of these things, Paul puts in that siren and he says, wake up, wake up, shake it off, shake off that lethargy, shake off that complacency, set it aside. We must live our life of faith with urgency. So now we move on to the second thing, clean up. He says, wake up. Then Paul says, clean up. Now, after we wake up, what's the first thing we do in the morning? Most of us. <laughs> Most days, right? We wash our face. We clean up. Maybe we'll take a shower. We'll brush our teeth. We'll do things to clean up to prepare ourselves for the day. Now, in Romans 13 and verses 12 to 13, Paul continues with this teaching. He says, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. So when Jesus returns, we don't want to be caught still mucking around in the darkness of sin as though it were still nighttime, right? Paul describes this waiting period that we're living in as the night, but he says the night is almost over, the day, referring to Jesus' return, is almost here. And he's using these night and day analogies to not only illustrate periods of time, but also to contrast good and evil. The night, the darkness, personifies evil. The day and the light personifies righteousness and, and goodness. And all that is God, holiness. And so, in verse 13, Paul then gives us three sets of sinful behavior that we need to put aside. They belong to the night. They belong to the darkness. So when we have woken up, we're getting up. It's daytime. We are to set these deeds of darkness aside. And he gives us three sets of these things. The first set is this. He says, orgies and drunkenness. Now, that's pretty specific and, and kind of wild, right? We read that and we go, oh, well, yeah, obviously, right? We've got to remember the context. The city of Rome was famous, world famous, for exactly these types of parties, You've got to remember, Rome was Sin City. It was Las Vegas. It was everything in, in one. And it was famous for these types of parties that, yes, would happen through the night in the darkness, where public drunkenness and sexual depravity, orgies, you name it, these things happened hand in hand in the darkness. And so Paul says to the Romans who lived in that culture where that was normal, and if you could get invited to a party, you know, that was a great honor to go there. And he says, don't do it anymore. Set that aside. That belongs to the darkness. The second set that he gives us is sexual immorality and debauchery. Now, these sins are closely connected with the first set. And they're, in fact, often a direct result of participating in them. So the word translated as debauchery points to an abandoned sensuality where all restraint or self-control has been cast aside. So he's saying you're just, you're just living for your senses, for pleasure of, of, the, of the flesh, and just with utter abandon. There's no restraint, there's no self-control. It's been cast aside. And then the third set he gives is dissension and jealousy. Now this refers to a wide array of things, but they all involve interpersonal issues, so dissension, this happens between people, right? So this refers to interpersonal dissension or issues between people or between groups of people. 
which are going to include things like resentment, rivalries, conflicts. And then he uses the term jealousies to refer to anything where you're, you're jealous of someone else. You're envious of what they have. You want it, their status, their possessions, you name it. And he says, these things belong to the dark. They belong to the night. Get rid of them. Clean up. There's a story told of a husband, and he came home late one night drunk. And, of course, he tried to sneak in without waking up his wife. He didn't want to get caught. And so after sneaking into the house, he goes into the bathroom. He looks in the mirror to assess the damage because he'd been in a fight that night on top of things. And there he looked at his face with the, the, the bruises and the bumps and the few cuts he'd received in the fight from earlier that night. He then carefully bandaged those cuts and bruises, all the ones he could see. He then quietly tiptoed upstairs, rolled into bed, and congratulated himself for pulling it off. He hadn't woken up his wife. She would be none the wiser what he had been up to. But when morning came, he opened his bleary eyes, and there stood his wife, who immediately scolded him. You were out drinking and brawling again last night, weren't you? No, honey, he pleaded in his defense. To which she replied, well, if you weren't, then who put all those band-aids on the bathroom mirror? He must have been in rough shape. He put bandits on all the things he could see. So, listen. The hour has come, Paul says. The hour has come to wake up and clean up. Those things belong to the night. They don't belong in the light. Live in the light. Put on the armor of light, he goes on to say, and we'll get there. Recognize that the wickedness in this world is poison. It is poison. Separate yourself from it. Set it aside. Wake up. Clean up from the old deeds of darkness. Behave decently in the daytime light of your new life in Christ. And now we come to the final command. We've seen wake up, clean up, and now armor up. Paul says if you really want to wake up and clean up, you need to not only set aside in this metaphor, you not only need to set aside the old clothing of sin, but you must now put on the new clothing that is appropriate for the follower of Christ that will actually make our victory over the darkness both without and within possible. Because remember, we're waging war against the darkness of sin from within and from without. And so where is the victory that we can have over the darkness? Paul tells us, the end of verse 12, Put on the armor of light. I love that. Armor of light. Use your imagination. you got armor that glows in the dark, right? So wherever you go, you are in the light. You could be going into the darkest place. Some of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. Such an incredible allegory. And what is Christian given? He is given armor. And he goes to the valley of the shadow of death and he faces all of these different things. But in this sense, it's like the armor is glowing. It is the armor of light. It is the armor of righteousness. It is the armor of God's protection over our lives. And he says, put it on. And then in verse 14, he says a step further about something we need to put on. He says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now take note the distinction between the two things that he commands us to put on. The first is armor of light, and the second is Jesus himself. So what does this mean? How do we put on Jesus? It's sort of a confusing concept. 
How do we put him on? Well, of this, Dr. Roy Lauren writes of the distinction between putting on the armor and putting on Christ. He writes, The first, the armor, the first is for our protection. The second is for our perfection. The first is defensive, the second is offensive. The one provides us with the abilities of Christian warfare. The other provides us with the attributes of the Lord's nature. One is for the Christian as a soldier. The other is for the Christian as a saint. So you see, without being clothed in Jesus himself and in his perfect righteousness, we can never be righteous enough on our own merit. And so if we stand before God's throne on that coming judgment day, in that condition, our sins will condemn us. There's no other way. However, as the great doctrine of justification has taught us, that when we are clothed in Christ's righteousness alone, it covers our sins so completely that we are justified, meaning it's just as if I never sinned. Christ's perfection now belongs to us by faith, and so in this way in Christ, clothed in Christ, we stand faultless, perfect before God's throne of grace without fear and with great joy. And so further to this, the doctrine of sanctification has taught us that as we live in the certainty of that coming day when we will stand before God's throne, in the here and now, God's power is slowly but certainly transforming us day by day, more and more into the character and the likeness of Jesus as we seek to imitate him in our own lives. The actor Daniel Day-Lewis he played the great American president, Abraham Lincoln, in the movie simply entitled Lincoln. Now, in order to do justice to this great man, the actor Lewis, he completely immersed himself in studying every aspect of Lincoln's life. Everything he could get his hands on to read about the man, about everything about him, he just simply dove in, in every possible way. The end result was that his portrayal of Abraham Lincoln was so compelling, so realistic, that he won the Academy Award for his part. Now, in much the same way, as followers of Christ, we must also completely immerse ourselves in the study of every aspect of Jesus' life so that our lives will also become to accurately reflect him to others as we more and more become like him. As we immerse ourselves in his life, his life becomes our life as we are clothed in him. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the process of sanctification. We are being transformed into his likeness. And so that is the clothing ourselves with Jesus Christ. But now back to the armor. So long as we live in this dark world, and so long as we still face the enemies of sin and Satan, we need the armor of light for our protection and for our ability to not only hold firm, but to also push back the darkness and advance God's kingdom as we walk forward in faith. Elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul calls this the armor of God, and he goes into great length detailing the different parts of it, which I'm sure you're familiar with. In Ephesians 6, verse 13, he wrote, 
Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Now, in the most horrific and bloody battle of attrition in human history, the Battle of Stalingrad, between the Soviet Russians and the Germans, the Nazi-German war machine, this Battle of Stalingrad raged for six months, taking over two million lives in the process. Of those two million casualties, three-quarters of them were Russian soldiers. Three-quarters, seven, pardon me, seven out of ten were Russian soldiers. And so in this war of attrition, this great battle, we look at how equipment came into play. The invading German army was well-trained, well-disciplined, and equipped with the most cutting-edge and modern equipment and sophisticated weaponry that had ever been invented in warfare up until this point of history. The German army had the best. The Russian army, on the other hand, did not even have enough rifles, bolt-action rifles. They didn't even have enough of them to give to all of their soldiers as they went into battle. And some of you will have seen the movie Enemy at the Gates that clearly and gruesomely depicted how thousands upon thousands of Russian conscripts are transported to the front lines. And once arriving there, the men were divided into pairs. The first man was given a rifle, and the second man was only given an extra magazine of bullets. And when the main character asks the question, where's my gun? The officer replies, there will be enough extra guns lying on the ground soon enough. And they are then forced to charge into the well-organized and defended German lines where they are promptly slaughtered. And so we see this, this, this Fact of history, where equipment mattered. But you know what? In the end, who prevailed? The Russians prevailed. And one of the reasons that the Russians ultimately prevailed on top of all of the loss of life was that the winter came. And it was an extremely frigid and cold winter. And the Russian army knew how to handle the winter. They had clothing to dress up for the frigid minus 40 temperatures in which they fought. The German army, however... They thought they were going to have victory before the winter arrived. They had not equipped their soldiers with winter gear, and most of the soldiers were only wearing thin summer uniforms. And in the end, that turned out to be a decisive factor in the victory for the Russians, was that in the end, the winter wear mattered. And it played into the outcome of the battle. Equipment matters in warfare. Equipment matters. The same is true in spiritual warfare. Equipment matters. To rush into battle, to rush into spiritual battle, unequipped, even if you're well-meaning and well-intentioned and zealous, but you go in unequipped, remember, you are facing a formidable foe. Satan's not a pushover. And if you go up against him unequipped, you are going to lose. But thankfully, God does not send us into battle unequipped. He has given us spiritual armor, both for defense and for offense, But the key is we have to put it on. Paul says, put it on. Wear every piece of the armor. Now, time does not allow to examine each piece of that armor. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sandals of the readiness to spread the gospel, the shield of faith, which which we can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, 
But just know that each one of those pieces is important, and none more so than the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I, and I have to tell you that it has been such a joy for me, both as a pastor and as a father, to see how the Sunday school, the, the, the initiative to give the kids Bible reading charts, complete with prizes for completion, it is causing our children, including my own children, my own two boys, to dive into God's Word. And in just the last two weeks, both of my sons have finished reading Mark and Luke and I'm pretty sure they started reading Proverbs during church here today. And, and I can't tell you what joy that brings to my heart. That, of course, you know, as a child, incentive for, for prizes is always a great thing. But to know that thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. That truth is internalized. And, and they're immersed in it. And it is the sword of the Spirit. It is our weapon. It is what brings us victory in the end. And I think that the example of the children, having most of them read, I think, both Mark and Luke, and some of them are into Proverbs in two weeks' time, I think some of us adults would do good to learn from that example. Maybe let's crack open our Bibles. Let's get into the Word. Let's use that sword of the Spirit. It is sharp, sharper than a double-edged sword, the Word tells us. But if we're not using it, if it's just lying on the shelf, we're going into battle unequipped. We need to pick it up every day, open it up, immerse it have it hidden in our hearts and so when the battle is over if we have done this thing if we have put on the armor paul says we will be found standing firm so if there was ever a present time in your life if there was ever an hour to wake up to clean up and to armor up that time that hour that minute is now for the hour of our salvation is now again and nearer than when we first believed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have received your word. We have heard it. And now we ask for the grace and the strength to receive it, to embrace it, to apply it to our lives. That we will set aside the slumber of sleep, of apathy, of complacency. We will set aside the, the works of darkness and the sins that belong in the dark, that we will wake up, that we will clean up, and that we will armor up, and we will put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will put on the armor of light, deliberately, intentionally, each day, and make the most of every opportunity that you give us until we see you face to face, because that moment is again drawing nearer and nearer. And we know that day will come. And so we pray, Father, help us to be found urgently doing the most important things you have set us to do in the time in which we are given. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.